And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I honestly don't think there's a more compelling or heroic story in public life than that of Senator Tammy Duckworth. You've heard some of it here before because she's been a guest on The Axe Files, but she's just written a terrific new memoir called Every Day is a Gift, in which she writes about her incredible story from her childhood in Asia to her family's struggles with poverty in Hawaii to her refusal to allow grievous war injuries to defeat her. I was honored to moderate a book event with Senator Duckworth last week and wanted to share that conversation with you in this special episode of The Axe Files. Senator Duckworth, my friend, it's great to see you again. You know, I thought I knew so much about you until I read this book. And I think most people think of your story as one of courage and resilience. Uh, and they date it back to your rendezvous with an RPG in the skies over Iraq. But your story is extraordinary from start to finish. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, your folks and uh, because this is a story that began halfway across the world. It did, David. Thanks for doing this. It's so nice to see you again Good as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, 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 you observe some of this story yourself. Um, not the beginning part, but, but some portions of this. And hopefully we'll get to that. But it does start halfway around the world with my father, who served in Vietnam and served very early on in the war. Um, but for him, late in his military career, he ended his military career in uh, Southeast Asia. He retired in 1972 after his 20 plus years of service in the military. Um, but he went to Asia and he fell in love with the version of himself that he was in Asia. Um, and he met and fell in love with my mom. And um, unlike other American GIs, who many of whom abandoned their Amerasian children, he stayed and made a life for himself and my mom and us in, in Southeast Asia. So I grew up as an American born overseas. And so I was very well aware of the privileges I had as an American um, because I could literally see with my own eyes the Amerasian street children who had been discarded uh, living on the streets. Um, and I also knew that that privilege for me was precarious, that you know, if my dad were to choose to leave like all of the Amer other American GIs, I too would be on the streets potentially. And so, um, uh, but my dad, did, you know, he made a life and uh, I followed him. Uh, around the war-torn countries of Southeast Asia. I was in Cambodia until a couple of weeks before the Khmer Rouge took over. I talk about that in detail in the yes. book. Um, I, I try and process what it was like as a child to witness yeah. what you witnessed. You know, you guys just, you escaped that just ahead of the fall of Phnom Penh. You you witnessed the refugee crisis in that, and you were a kid. You thought the You thought the bombs that were exploding around you, you wrote, were fireworks. That's what my parents told us so that we wouldn't be scared. It's, it's my, probably one of my very earliest childhood memories. I must have been five or six at the time. Um, my, my dad would actually take us to the roof. We had a, a house that um, we rented. My dad worked for the United Nations Development Programs. That's why we were in Cambodia. He was actually putting up telephone lines and repairing the telephone lines that had been, that had been bombed out, and he was repairing them. And so um, we were there until the very end because my father – sincerely believe Americans would come in. He sincerely believed in the domino theory that we would not let 
Cambodia fall to the communists. And so he kept us there far longer than he should have. And, you know, we took it up to the roof of the house and we would watch tracer fire into the night sky across the river and watch the bombs happening. And he told us that those were fireworks. And so as kids, you believe your parents. It wasn't until I started reading, as I started writing the book that I started talking to my mom and her memories of Phnom Penh are very different than mine. You know, uh, I, I remember some of the war torn things, but but I don't I didn't remember, for example, when we left that we were crouching below windows as bullets were flying over our heads, getting on that last uh, commercial flight out. I don't I didn't remember that. My mom reminded me of that. You know, you talk about your dad uh, uh, fell in love with the, that version of himself, but there were other there was another version. First of all, his family dates back to pre revolutionary war days and every generation of Duckworths served uh, in the military, uh, your mom's family came from China and they fled Mao. Uh, so, uh, and and you, and you wrote that, and it, it speaks to what you said earlier that you, you did have concerns. Your father had a family back in the U S he was married there and he went back at one point. You said you, you, you had a fear that he wouldn't come back, I guess, because of what you saw all around you. Right. My dad, um, uh, by this point had divorced his, his, his first wife and, um, but, you know, to me, it was always this, how did he leave his, you know, he had other daughters. How did he leave that first family? And and so there was always this sense that maybe he could abandon us. And he was at one point stationed at Fort Sheridan in Chicago for a year. And he decided not to bring the family with him for that year. And so my immediate fear was that we could be abandoned. And I, again, very young, maybe six or seven the first thing I did was run to the kitchen and I write about this in the book and check to make sure that we had enough rice that would carry us through. If you've ever been in an Asian kitchen, you will know that there's a 40 pound bag of rice under the sink in every Asian household. And that's what I checked up on. And that was my first instinct. So I think, you know, looking back in writing this book, I realized maybe I had a little bit of a survival instinct from early on that I never recognized in myself. You mentioned you've lived in several countries in Thailand and in Cambodia and in Indonesia for seven years briefly in Singapore and then back to Thailand. And ultimately, uh, you came to Hawaii and you came there only with your dad and your brother. Your mom couldn't come. Why not? What, and, and, and what was that like to leave her behind? Yeah, it was devastating to leave her behind. She couldn't come because my dad had lost his job about four years earlier and we had descended into poverty. Um, my, my dad stubbornly refused to come back to the States. He kept thinking he could find another job um, in Asia, and he just never could. You see, by this point, it was in his mid fifties, and it, you know, in Asia, there's discrimination. They can actually put down on um, job listings that um, wanted white male ages thirty five to forty. You know, and nobody would hire him, and they kept saying he was overqualified, which was just code for you're too old. And so we descended until we had nothing left. And um, I write about my dad taking me to cash in my passbook savings account. The last money we had in the world was my $300. I had been saving up tooth fairy money and birthday money and Christmas money. And that's all the money we had in the world. They borrowed a little, but they could only borrow enough money to buy three one-way tickets um, to the closest U.S. soil, which was Hawaii. Um, And my mom couldn't come because she didn't have a visa. Even though she was married to an American and she had two American kids, she couldn't come because she didn't have a visa. We didn't have the money to pay for a visa. Um, or, or, or we, and we had no time to wait. So we had to come without her. And so at 15, I became the mom in the family and I yeah. took on that role. All of this must shape your view. And we have these contemporary debates and you're sitting there in the United States Senate and people are talking about refugees and immigration. This, these are not theoretical discussions for you. 
They're not. And even now, now that I have my two baby girls, my beautiful Abigail and my beautiful Miley, you know, when the refugee crisis hit, um, uh, I had just had Abigail and she was still, you know, a few months, you know, I think she was three months and then six months. I remember thinking, looking down, holding her thinking, how bad a situation could one be in that the best thing I could do for my six month old baby is to put her on a raft and go out into the ocean. They did that. The Vietnamese boat people did that. Um, I watched the fall of the Berlin Wall when, you know, East Germans and, and Czechoslovakians at the time were running for the train stations, afraid that the Berlin Wall, would, the, the Iron Curtain would go up and everything that they had. It, it just brought back these memories of, of Southeast Asia um, and Cambodians fleeing and, 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 and Vietnamese fleeing. And now, you know, we look again at, at refugee crisis and I just, yeah, it, it affects me very personally because I, I, and then I looked down at my babies and I think, yeah. How, how is that the safest thing? And it is. It is literally yeah. the best decision those families could make. Yeah, it's, it's, it's horrifying. It's also hard to process what that was like to, your, to leave your mom behind. And then now you're, the, you're the, the caretaker in the family. And your dad, you write, uh, was too proud to take the kind of work he could get, minimum wage work. So you did. You're going through high school and you're, you're working multiple jobs to try and keep your family afloat i am i finally after several months we were we we got to a point where we had no money i mean the one thing my dad did do was he went to the american legion auxiliary and and a lady a 90 year old woman at the american uh, uh, legion auxiliary wrote him a check that kept the roof over our heads we checked into this um you know pay by the week or maybe by by this point every two week motel kind of a place uh, um uh and uh we we lived there and he did get food stamps so we had food um, uh, but oftentimes we didn't have food at the end of the month and, and, you know, we would go hungry. And so the school lunch and school breakfast were the only meals, Tom and I, and my dad, my dad would not, would literally skip meals and it would have, you know, we would bring home left, leftover school lunches for my dad. Um, how did he, how did he process that? His kids coming home with food from school for yeah. him. You would never know the pain, um, in someone's eyes until, You've watched what I saw, which was my dad accepting this apple that I saved for my school lunch for him, knowing that that would be the only thing he ate that day and telling him, no, daddy, I wasn't hungry or I got two apples, you know, and so I brought an extra one and or I bought an extra little box of milk. And, and here you go, daddy. And knowing he, he knew that I lied and I knew that he knew that I lied, but he yet still accepted it from me because that was the only food that he had. I mean, the pain in a parent's eyes and and. I think my dad descended into a kind of depression, um, almost like a combination of depression. And, and I, 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 in the book, I describe it as like a gambler. He just kept thinking, like, if he rolled the dice and applied for another job, he was going to get that hotel manager job. And I was at one point finally had a screaming match with him. It's like, you're not going to get the hotel manager job. You might be able to be a doorman. You need to go get a job. And, and, and I went out and got the job because um, I knew that if I did, we would not eat. We would be out of our, we would be homeless. You know, in several places here, um, you talk about wanting to kind of win the approbation of your father um, and uh, how distant he was uh, from you, that you never felt like you were measuring up in his eyes. Uh, why was that? I think there's a lot of gender politics there a little bit. You know, my dad grew up in the old South. My dad was a cusper. You know, he wasn't quite... Uh, uh, World War II, but he also was too old to be baby boomer. 
So he was 14, 15, um, um, right at the end of World War II, and, 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 he, and he, you know, he enlisted uh, right at the end of the war and, and, and served. Um, and so, you know, I, I think my dad had a lot of that sort of depression era generation. He grew up during the Great Depression. And so for him, you know, he all everything was invested in my brother. My brother would be the one who was going to be the military officer. My brother was the one who was going to be the baseball star. My brother, my, you know, and, and, and that was really reinforced by the Asian culture that my mom came from. And so, um, you know, my role growing up, I knew was to grow up and someday I would be the one to take care of my parents. You know, that's what the oldest daughter does. Um, you know, and I would be the one to take care of my mom. Um, but I, I hungered for my dad's, you know, approval. And, and I was daddy's girl. I mean, my dad spoiled me. He bought me all the Barbie dolls and, you know, uh, I wanted, um, uh, but that wasn't the same as getting his approval and getting his respect and, um, mm -hmm. his pride. And he never expressed that he was ever proud, um, in me until the very end. Yeah. I want to get to that. Even as you were supporting the family, even as you kept the family together, uh, you felt that way. I know at, at one point you write about the fact that you finally wrote your mother in desperation and said, you got you to gotta get here because uh, we're, we're, we're struggling. Uh, and she did. She made it there. Uh, and your family was reunited. And you, you worked your way through high school. You went to the University of Hawaii. And uh, and ultimately to graduate school in Washington and international relations, international affairs became uh, your focus. Was that because of all that you, you had seen or what drew you to that? Just watching what America meant to the world growing up. You know, I, I from every early on understood the privilege I had of being an American because I was on the cusp of not having that privilege had my dad not stayed. And so my dad really early on instilled in, in both my brother and I that we needed to serve our country in some way. Um, uh, I thought I would serve in the foreign service. I remember going to, you know, my dad at one point worked for the United Nations refugee program. So I remember that, you know, he, when he would help deliver bags of rice with the American flag on it. And just growing up in Southeast Asia post-Vietnam was really interesting because people respected America, not because we just won a war. In fact, we just lost a war to an army in black pajamas. Right. So we weren't this great military might. We just lost this war. We had to dump all those helicopters into the ocean and, and then flee, you know. And so but people respected us for the ideals, the values uh, that we stood for. And, and I watched the American ambassador, you know, doing ribbon cuttings for new hospitals and schools and wells and all that. And I thought, I want to grow up someday to become a U.S. ambassador. And I, I, I was working towards being that foreign service officer stamping passports, you know, in a little kiosk somewhere. That was like my dream. <laughs> well, let me tell you something, Senator. In, to, in the parlance of one of your uh, careers, you kind of overshot the runway here. Uh, <laughs> That's not a good thing in the Army. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, let's talk about how you happened to end up in the Army because that wasn't, as you said, your your plan. And it was really because you had lost a job and someone suggested uh, – uh, another course that you you ended up uh, signing up in, in the ROTC program and so on. Talk a little bit about how the, how you came to the military. Yeah. So when I was at GW getting my master's, the, I got a job. There is uh, for those who are in the military world know there's an article. Or there's a, a series of books called the Jane's Defense Weekly, mm -hmm. and it's it's a database of all military equipment worldwide. But there was one that the U.S. Naval Institute created as well, the U.S. Naval Institute database. And I worked for the U.S. Naval Institute 
um, they had they had um, published a, a book by a, a very dense book by an author that nobody would publish, and it was called The Hunt for Red October. And as a not for profit, yeah. they made they made millions of dollars off this book, but they're not for profit, so they put that money into this database. And I had a job writing um, all of the records on signal and uh, on signal equipment, which was my dad's old, which was my dad's old uh, uh, army. So you know, but army job. So when I had a question about a raider, I could just call up my dad. It's like dad, uh-huh. daddy, you know. So it, it really helped. Probably like, and, he probably liked that. Uh, he loved it. And again, I was trying to get my dad's, you know, I was right. trying to get my dad's approval, um, but. Eventually, the Naval Institute sold that database to uh, a, a, a for-profit corporation who then laid me off. And so I had the summer off and I didn't know what I was going to do. I started looking for another job when um, the other students in my master's degree program, there were quite a few veterans and currently serving military men. And they said, Nick, listen, you want to join the Foreign Service and you want to go overseas. You should at least know the difference between a division and a platoon. Why don't you go, you know, go to basic training? Uh, you'll make some money. There'll be drill sergeants yelling at you. So you're not gonna be able to spend that money. Just don't go out and get a tattoo with your first, <laughs> with your first paycheck. And you'll make a little money at the end of the summer. And you'll learn a little bit about the military and takes more OTC classes. It'll make you a better foreign service officer. Hmm. So I said, yeah, that's a, that's a win-win situation. I'll go off, you know, I'll get fit, you know, they'll, they'll run me around. I'll lose some weight. And <laughs> I'll get fit and make a little bit of money and I'll learn something that'll maybe help me in my, in my degree program. I never expected to fall in love with the army, which but I you did. did. And you said almost immediately, almost immediately. Yeah. Cause almost immediately, the first thing they did was challenge you. It, it, it became really clear. There was a meritocracy and it didn't matter that I was a biracial, you know, little half Asian girl that showed up. They just mattered whether or not I was willing to learn to shoot straight. And I was willing to, you know, carry my load. So no sexism, no racism back, back then when you started, <sighs> maybe I was, I, I didn't see it. I didn't feel it. Um, but, you know, maybe I was purposefully blind to it. I don't know. Well, um, me- I certainly didn't feel it that way. I felt like it was challenge put to me. And as long as I stepped up, you know, I was able to uh, make my way. Let, let me let me posit two things to you that I've never spoken with you about, I don't think. But uh, maybe one I have. But two theories about this. One is you had, uh, you know, quite a lot of disorder in your childhood, a lot of turmoil, a lot of upheaval. The army is uh, orderly. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything is orderly. And I'm wondering if that was of some comfort uh, to you. Uh, and the second is obvious, which is, uh, was this a way that you hadn't even, didn't even think about at the time of getting the approbation of your dad? And did he think it was nuts that you went down this road? So when I told him that I was going to go off to basic training and join ROTC, he said one thing to me. And he, the only, only thing he said to me was, so you think you can make it? That was all he said. Never good for you or anything. Just you think you're going to be able to make it? And I said, yeah, daddy, I think I can. And off I went. Yeah, I am a list, I'm, I am a list maker. Like I like, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a planner, a list maker. I like to check things off. And so, you know, I like that I had to fold my underwear into, you know, little squares <laughs> and, <laughs> and have everything in order. You know, when I check into a hotel room, the first thing I do is I, I unpack my bags and I fold everything neatly the way I like it in order. So, yeah, maybe I was pre-programmed <laughs> to join the army. You also, as time went on, you wanted to fly. Uh, you wanted yeah. to you and you wanted to be where the action was. Yeah. So how, how did you end up, ultimately, you were in the Air National Guard in Illinois. You moved to Illinois to get a, 
a doctorate at Northern Illinois University. Um, how, how did you end up at, at behind the controls of a Black Hawk helicopter? I never, I, I never thought about flying, David. I thought I was going to become either military intelligence because I speak Thai and Indonesian, um, uh, or I was going to go into signal, which is what my dad's field was. Um, and I've been doing all of the, you know, I've been writing all of these records uh, for the Naval Institute. So I, I knew something about, by this point about radars and, and telecommunications. Um, but I, would, I, I, I write about this in the book where I sat down as the only woman in my commissioning class when the officer um, uh, who was teaching us said, okay, everybody put down your wish list of what job you want in the army. The army is ultimately going to choose. It's called needs of the army. So if you, and, but, and then he said that men of your top 10, five have to be combat arms. So you could be an accounting major and wanted to become a finance officer. You still had to put in your top 10 artillery, infantry, cavalry, you know, all of these combat arms positions. Then he Not so with said, women, huh? Not so Duckworth. He, and he, he singled me out and said, except for Duckworth, she's female. Females don't serve in combat. Duckworth, you put everything down except for combat. And are there any combat jobs open to women? And he was an army aviator and he lied to me. And he lied by omission. And he said, well, women aren't allowed to fly in combat, which is true. But it's not true that women couldn't fly helicopters. Women can fly medevac, for example. So he lied to me by omission. Um, and it wasn't until I talked with Brian later on, my uh, husband. Yes. Yeah. And he said, well, he lied to you by omission. And then I, that made, that pissed me off. So then I went in and I put aviation <laughs> as my first choice and took the aptitude test and I scored off the charts on it. Yeah. So it was not something that I was looking to do. I just felt that if I was going to get equal pay for equal work, I should face equal risk. And it was wrong that I didn't have to face the same risk as, you know, the accounting major who had, wanted to be financed, but it was now a, a chemical corps officer or infantry officer. Brian was, um, uh... A bit skeptical about uh, about women uh, in, in the military, apparently at the beginning, and said something to you for which he quickly apologized. But that was the beginning of a great of a great future, I guess. It was. So he he made uh, he he made us a, a comment about the women's performance at what's called advanced camp. So you do basic training, then you come back and you do two years of ROTC. Well, one year of ROTC, and then you go your junior at the end of your junior year to get evaluated. It's called advanced camp, and you get evaluated um, on how well you do things like lead. It's all infantry tactics. So you 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 get you know a, a grenade assault course, or how to take out a machine gun's nest, and everybody takes a ch- turn being the squad leader. And how well you do it, all that gives you a score, and it um, determines whether or not you actually get commissioned into the army. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brian, uh, in our training up to uh, me going off to advanced camp was an upperclassman and he came in swaggering with his other seniors and, and said, you know, all the females at advanced camp were effed up as far as he was concerned, that they were not mm. real soldiers. Um, and I was standing at attention with my M16 in front of me and apparently, you know, trying to keep my face still, eyes straight ahead at a position of attention, but apparently my irritation showed yeah. <laughs> because he came over and apologized. At least you didn't wield your weapon. I did. Yeah. Yeah. He did. I, I, by the, he helped me clean my weapon. And by the end of the session, he had my phone number. So he's a pretty sweet guy. (laughs) We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. There's so much to talk about, but I want to fast forward 
to the war in Iraq. I mean, you you really really fought to you were you were by that time commanding a unit, and you were real and the unit got shipped off, and you wanted to be shipped with them. You you really fought to get to Iraq. I did. So I had commanded this unit for two years. Normally, a, a command tour. A company command is two years, and I had been extended, and I had actually commanded them for three years. So for three years, I commanded this unit. Nine eleven happened uh, on my watch in that you know in that unit, and so when nine eleven happened, you know it was my unit that was at Midway Airport, not knowing whether or not um, you know we were next in Chicago. There was not an airplane coming towards us, and I was in Ireland, and I'm sorry, I was in Scotland at the time, and I was like trying to get back to my unit. So I knew we were going to go to war. Um, and then we were alerted in May of 2003, but then we were stood down. And in, in October, I rotated out. I had been there for a year too long anyway, and so it was time. And I handed over command of my unit in October, at the end of October and the beginning of November of 2003. And then within a couple of weeks, the unit got caught up. And there was no way I was going to let the mad dogs go off to war without me. I was mm. There was no way that I was going to let my battalion go off to war and be the only army aviator standing in Springfield at, you know, uh, uh, the headquarters building waving. And while the guys that I had been training for three years go off to war without me. Let me fast forward to November 12th, 2004, which is a day I know that you think about often and you write about and uh, you, you, you celebrate it every year as your alive day. But, uh, uh j- just describe briefly um, what happened because it very nearly wasn't an alive day for you. Right. So that day was a really normal day, David. It was just another day. We were we were eight months boots on the ground in Iraq. We had been in Kuwait before that. So we were at least 10 months away, well, more longer than 10 months away from home um, at this point. Um, and actually getting ready to uh, uh, turn over and train our replacements. Um, it was really just a normal day. I was out flying missions all over Iraq. Um, I loved it. I, I got to fly with Chief Warrant Officer Dan Milberg, who's the pilot in command, and I had flown with him for a while. He's from the Missouri National Guard, and, and I, I love flying with him because he's dry sense of humor, but I always learned from him. He was a Desert Storm veteran, um, and, and I just love, you know, it was one of those super extra long days, and um, and at the end of the day, when missions were done, uh you know, we, we were getting ready to go back to Balad when we got a call to detour and pick up some passengers. And so we took the mission and we detoured and it was on our way back from that detour when I flew over a nest of insurgents. This was during the second battle for Fallujah. So a net, these insurgents have been flushed out of Fallujah uh, to the east and they, they were in this village. And I was directed by air traffic control to fly over a particular route. And um, the bad guys just threw everything they had into the air and one of those things was an RPG that landed in my lap and basically vaporized my right leg and amputated my left and took off most of the, my right arm um, and uh, uh, disabled my aircraft. And then, and then the fun started, which was trying to stay alive and get the aircraft on the ground. You didn't realize at first how grievously injured you were and you were concentrating on, you thought you could be, you could be operating the chopper but you 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 didn't have your legs weren't there you and when you when 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 the chopper was put down your buddies thought that you were gone they thought you were dead they did you know we each thought that we were the only person in the crew and well between Dan and me that were alive 
um, because uh, the, the blast took out our avionics. So we couldn't talk to each other. So as we were talking, no one was responding and we didn't realize that. Um, uh, and so how many times during the day do you look down to see if your feet are there? You can feel them. And I could feel my feet and I thought I was flying, uh, but it was really Dan Milberg who uh, heroic, amazing flying landed the aircraft. Dan is a police officer and an EMT in Missouri um, mm. and uh, in, in the civilian world. And he looked at me and he said, Tammy, you were just a torso. There was nothing, there was no bottom half to you. So I knew you were dead. Um, so he immediately initiated um, the evacuation procedures. We had a second aircraft. Chief Warrant Officer Pat Minks was a former medevac pilot who was flying that aircraft. He landed, got everybody out, got me to, uh, um, and then they came back and, and carried my body out because um, not long before that, before this had happened, I don't know, recall if you remember, but um, an American uh, a contractor had been killed and his body dragged through the streets of Baghdad on CNN. And they didn't want that hap- to happen to my body and they didn't want my family to see that. So my buddies went back and, and they lived the warrior's ethos, which is you leave no fallen comrade behind. In fact, I, st- I opened the book with the warrior ethos um, uh, at the very beginning because they lived that ethos, those men who, who refused to leave me. And as you said, that's... Uh... Uh, that's when the fun began, which was no fun yeah. at all. How many, uh, you, you were taking a while to read. That's where Brian was, mm-hmm. w- uh, met you. He, he had been at a wedding uh, and he met you there uh, once he was told what happened. And uh, he intervened when they wanted to uh, fully amputate your, your legs. You, you were unable, obviously, to engage in that conversation. Yeah, I um. So my right leg, I only have you know the the ball joint of the hip bone. I only have about an inch of that bone left of that of that femur left. Um, and uh, the doctors at the time, this was fifteen years ago. A standard procedure was would have been just to get rid of the remainder of that bone, um, because uh, it was believed it would atrophy in a flexed and upwards position that would be uncomfortable for me and would require amputation later on. And so the doctors came to Brian and my mother, who was there also, and said, you know, if you would just let us amputate, she's unconscious anyway. We're taking her into surgery every other day. We could very easily take that off. Um, and, uh, and she wouldn't have to make that decision later on, later on. My mom, being a mom, immediately said, well, yes, of course, because she wanted to spare me any more pain and distress. But Brian, knowing me, uh, also knew that if there was a chance that I could learn to walk on and, and, and attach a prosthetic to even that short of a limb, um, uh, that he wanted me to have the opportunity to try and that, you know, he would be the one that would face, you know, uh, me having to make the choice to amputate again later if that ultimately was what was needed. Um, and I learned to walk on that leg after all. How many surgeries uh, did you have? You know, David, I don't know. I, I was in literally every other day for months in the surgery, every other day. And describe the pain. Um, I, I talk about a wall of pain. It, it, it just, my hair follicles hurt. It felt, my legs felt like my, the veins in my legs were filled with liquid lava and I was being electrocuted simultaneously, continuously. It, it was pain that unrelenting, it, it was so bad that I didn't know if I would survive the pain. It wasn't that I didn't think I would survive my injuries. I just didn't know if I would survive the pain. There, I want to ask you about a few visitors uh, you had there. 
and I guess you were a visitor to another hospital room. Your dad had a heart attack. And by now your family had moved to Virginia. Your dad had a heart attack. He was in the floor above you. You went to see him. Tell me about that conversation. So my dad, at this point, my parents had moved back to Hawaii because they had retired and oh. moved to Hawaii. They were in Hawaii. So um, just before I was shot down, my dad had had a heart attack about 36 hours before I shot mm-hmm. down. I got a message that dad had had a heart attack. And when I was shot down, um, he, my mom left her side to come to me. And so I was shot down on November 12th. And um, uh, he went, he slowly recovered. And um, the doctors in Hawaii uh, cleared him to travel to see me. And he came and, and I saw him the day before Christmas. So, um, you know, this was about three weeks after he'd had his, his heart attack. And he came to see me the day before Christmas. Um, I saw him and then the next day, and then we had Christmas. And then the day after Christmas, he had a heart attack, his final heart attack. And they had to um, admit him to Walter Reed into the cardiac ward. So I was on the fifth floor of the amputee ward and my dad was on the fourth floor in the, in the cardiac ward. So in a very weird way, getting shot, shoot down was a, a strange gift in a way because had I not been shot down, my dad would have had that heart attack and would have passed away anyway, but I would never have gotten to see him the way I, I could because we were both in the same hospital as patients. And tell me about the conversation when you went into his room. Yeah, he was very sentimental. He was very sentimental. And, and um, I think me getting shot down and losing my legs really shook him, you know, and uh, uh, and I was getting better and I, I would go to therapy and I would go to see him afterwards. And when I finally got my first prosthesis for my below knee amputation on my left side, I brought that leg to show him. And, and he was really distressed even before I got the leg. He's like, but Tammy, he had such beautiful feet. So your dad was sentimental, which was unusual for him. It was unusual. With me, it was unusual. My dad was a sentimental guy when he talked about things like Winchester, Virginia, or you know, uh, uh, one of his uh, um, uh, uh, one of his daughters from his previous family. But he 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 would tend to be nostalgic about different things. But he was never that way about me. Um, and it was really nice to have him say that he was proud of me. Yeah, he had never said that before. No, he'd never said it. You know, he he would you know accept that I got good grades or that I did well mm-hmm. in something. He would just acknowledge that, and he would just say, "Well, you know, um, keep working hard." Yeah. You know, you, you got you got to be in a C in band. <laughs> you better go practice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He uh, and he passed away shortly after that conversation. He did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank God you had a chance to have that uh, yes. experience, uh, that that exchange. Another person who you saw in the hospital or didn't see in the hospital was Don Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, who came by on a visit to uh, the wounded in, uh, at Walter Reed. You opted not to see the Secretary of Defense. First of all, how was that received? And secondly, why? Because I felt that he was the architect of the war in Iraq and that he was not an honest broker about it. I felt that he lied to the American people and that uh, uh, you know he, he'd led this nation into this war. And I, you know, I, I tried to be a good soldier, David. I really tried to be a good soldier all the time. And, um, but I think it was just like on a night when I was tired and I'd been in pain and I was just done. I was done with the folks coming through just to have a picture taken with me, not because they truly cared about me, 
And so this colonel, it's in the evening, the a colonel comes knocking on the door. He's a public affairs officer and he sticks his head and says, Secretary of Defense is coming. Secretary of Defense is coming. You're so lucky. He's going to be here. You know, he's down the hallway. He's seeing another soldier. He'll be seeing you next. And I just looked at him and said, is that an order, sir? And he looked at me. I, I think I, he, you know, I stopped him in his track and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, he's in my chain of command. So if it's an order, I will see him. But if not, then I really would rather he not come in my, come, you know, cross my threshold. And, the, and he said, the colonel said, well, okay, you don't have to see him. And the next day, they sent a psychiatrist in to see me and said, so you did not want to see Secretary Rumsfeld. Are you having some, event? you know, do you want to talk to us about it? And it's like, I think it makes me the sanest person in this room. What are you talking about? I thought that was a good choice on my part. <laughs> Another person who came to visit you was Senator Dick Durbin, and he ultimately became a great champion of yours and persuaded you to run for Congress back home in Illinois. You didn't win that race. I, I, I often explain largely because of inadequate uh, strategic help from your consultants. But, uh, Which was you. To, that happened to be me. <laughs> uh, but, um, and I'm wondering, as someone who's, who overcame so much in life, who, you know, you had so many obstacles placed in front of you, and through sheer force of will, you overcame the worst possible uh, kinds of challenges. And you write a little bit about this, but describe what losing was like. Devastating, David. I, I felt that I let everybody down. I felt le- that I let Dick down. I felt that I let you down. All of those donors. I mean, we, we I, I don't know, recall, we had a donor who every time he got his social security check would send me, would take a $5 bill, buy a stamp and then send me the rest in an envelope. And he did that, you know. I mean, people believed in me and trusted in me and, and, and I failed them. Yeah, And I just felt like, did I not work hard enough? Not true, of course, but I can understand why. Yeah, it was devastating. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. First, you were the director of the VA in Illinois, and then you mm-hmm. were assistant to, uh, secretary of the VA in, in Washington under the Obama administration. I remember very vividly going to Walter Reed with you and you doing for others what others did for you and visiting with people who had been wounded. I distinctly remember you wearing a pair of shorts so that people could see your prosthetic legs and going up to a young man who had lost his foot and you asked him why he was in there. And he said, well, I lost my foot. And you said, that's a flesh wound. You'll be up in Adam in no time. Uh, and you saw the kids smile. And um, I so admired you uh, for that. You ultimately did get elected to Congress. And then you ran for the Senate in Illinois. And, um, you know, it's interesting to read your writing about how that experience went, because uh, you you had just uh, had your child, your first child. and uh, you were struggling with the um, uh, with the the cha- the demands of running for office and being a, a new mom and uh, talk about talk about that because you you actually said I'm not sure what I would have done if I knew how agonizing uh, that 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 period of my life would be. Yeah, it was bad, David. I mean, I I I was home on maternity leave 
when the decision whether or not I would run for Senate had to be made. Um, because Illinois has a very early primary, right? Yes, Our primary March, is yeah. in March. And so I was home on maternity leave and I had, you know, we, we realized that I would have to declare probably by the end of March prior to, you know, the, the one at the one year mark, especially if we wanted to clear the field and not have other people jump in and not have an expensive primary. And, and um, I just felt like I was never good enough. I felt like I wasn't doing right by the campaign because I was always worried about my daughter and trying to be there for her. And when I was with her, I felt like I was abandoning the campaign and I wasn't a good candidate. I was just torn to pieces trying to do both at the same time because I still bought into this, you know, if you just if you just prepared better, if you just organized better, if you just did things better, um, you could have work-life balance, you could be both. And I broke down. I, I got to a point where I just could not do both. And I was... I broke down in, 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 a, in a meeting with all the consultants and Joe Normington, um, uh, who poster, is yes. uh, my poster that you know well. Yes. Um, you know, she, she you know, first my, Caitlin Fahey, who's my chief of staff, had to come to see Jesus. Uh, you know, she, she I, I was pouting in this meeting and I, and I basically threw a temper tantrum about how nobody cared about me. And she looked at me and she said, literally, we're all here because you decided you wanted to run for Senate. So we are all here for you. Um, and, and you need people like that to backhand you a mm-hmm. little bit in politics to keep you your head straight. And then I sort of I went into a separate area and I just started to cry. And, and Joe Norrington came and, and she said, Tammy, it's a lie. There's no such thing as work life balance. You're not going to be enough for the campaign and you're never going to be enough for your child. Let me know. Let me tell you, because I have you know, she had her own son as mm-hmm. well. And that talk really helped make a difference for me. Um, and it helped me sort of not be so hard on myself, but it was hard, David. It, it was, you know, running for office is hard enough and doing it as a new mom is really terrible, but I'm still glad that I did it. Um, and, and now I get to be a Senator and try to help my, you know, my daughters and other kids. So. And draw on all these experiences that you've had that are, that, that so many who of your colleagues just haven't had, uh, that is so important. I always thought, um, when people ask me about you, I said, I want someone, when we're discussing issues like war, uh, I want someone who's going to walk down that aisle uh, on her, her prosthetic lips, having made that sacrifice, uh, understanding what was what the wages of war are and what the cost of war is. And of course, um, that is uh, true of uh, of poverty and it's, it's true of... Uh, uh, of migration and all the issues that have touched your life. Uh, finally, I, I just want to say you 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 have said uh, that you don't watch war movies. You don't watch you know the Hurt Locker, and so you don't watch these things uh, that uh, encapsulate your experience. You went back as a senator to Iraq, and you write about this, uh, and you you were flown over the exact site where your 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 chopper landed. Uh, after the attack. Tell me about that experience. Um, what I really wanted most of all was to leave Iraq under my own power, not be carried out on a stretcher. I, I feel like I did not have closure with Iraq, leaving the way I did. Being flown over that spot, you know, I I was going through all of these flashbacks because I was just getting on the aircraft, feeling the body armor that I had to put on brought me back to being there the last time 
smelling the aircraft, smelling the, the you know, the, the jet fuel, smelling the hydraulics. So I was in this place where I was reliving, you know, my days in the aircraft, my days in Iraq. And then to get to that spot and to see approaching it, you know, we flew in at a much higher altitude than the day that day. Um, but seeing exactly what it looked like and, and, um, I, I, des- I looked desperately wanting to see any remnants of my aircraft. Of course, it was not there. Um, uh, uh, I just gave thanks, you know. And the book is called Every Day is a Gift because every day since November 12th, including November 12th, has been a gift to me. And, and that's all I could do was just, you know, to say thanks. And Yeah, and the unit there gave you a, a boot Yeah, <laughs> to symbolize uh, your, your visit there. Well, all I can say is that um, that book would be one hell of a movie <laughs> in and of its own. I hope some of our audience here are are screenwriters and are uh, taking notes because uh, it's an unbelievable story. So thank you for sharing it with me and, and with all of us. This book is gripping, and I really recommend oh, it. You. Buy it for someone you know. Recommend it to someone you know because it is an extraordinary story of courage and perseverance and commitment, and it will make you proud, and it will inspire you. So thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you laughed out loud, too. I hope you laughed out loud, too. So <laughs> Yes, yeah. Good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.